Welcome to the Real Life Roundtable podcast, conversations about culture, Christianity, church, and community, and where all those intersect as we explore real life with one another. The Real Life Roundtable is a production of Real Life Community Church in Portage, Indiana. For more information, follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Pastor Ben here. I'm with Pastor Rich, and I am also here with our special guest, Pastor Greg Arthur from Doonland Community Church. He is also with Free the Girls. We're going to talk a little bit about the ministry areas that he's passionate about and kind of his whole deal. But the first thing, the elephant in the room, is that we have competing coffee ministries in mm. the district here. Mm. So, no, first, have- first of all, how many cups of coffee, Greg, do you drink a day? How many cups do I drink a yeah. day? That's a great question. I'm Probably uh, two regular, and then I may have some decaf just for pleasure. As I drink my coffee out of my Green Bay Packers coffee mug. This I have is, no judgment. This is probably number five, actually. Okay. Yeah. I'm I've, a, I've never drank decaf for pleasure, but that's probably a good idea. Like, I'll still just drink caffeinated coffee all day, and that's probably why I have problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, And I drink uh, a lot of cold brew. Okay. And I oh, really? brew my own cold brew. Which has a bit higher intensity. Yeah. So what's the okay. difference between cold? I mean, the actual. You're not just brewing coffee and just letting it get cold. It's not iced coffee. Okay. Iced coffee is a it was, stronger it was hot. brew. With it was ice. hot, and now you made it cold. Right. So you've taken a product and made it worse. Right. Because I mean, I've drank cold coffee that's been sitting too long. That's no, disgusting. It's bad. Cold brew is an actual different process. You actually brew the coffee in cold water. So you pick uh, a more coarse ground bean. And you and it's in the, the filter and you put cold water in there and it uh, literally filters it that way and creates the, the the it's almost like a concentrate over a longer period of time, usually 12 hours to 24 hours. Okay, and so I can't just of, I can't just use my pour over for that. No, it takes a longer period of time and it's smoother and richer. It's hmm. it's just delicious. So it's um it's a it's a different coffee experience. Than wow! Doing that, so we just threw the, the word in experience. My experience is Mr. Drip. I mean that that's my experience. Yeah, it shows you how cultured I am. As somebody who is there's no shade. As somebody who has become a uh, coffee fanatic, that's uh, pretty awesome. I have no judgment with how people. So what's your want favorite to way to drink it? Coffee, cold brew in the mornings. What really? I, okay. What I do in the morning? I'm over a, ice. Like sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a pour over guy. So Hillary got me on the Chemex. So I. I yeah. Get the fresh grounds and do the pour over method. So what was everyone's first experience with coffee? Oh man. Was it a good one or a bad one? Uh, Mine's a bad one. I don't one. know. I'm getting so old. Um, during truck parts, break room, ashtrays, cigarettes everywhere. Stank, stank to hide heaven. Oh, maybe. How old did you start drinking it? Uh, my first cup of coffee in there was probably seven or eight years old. Okay. Uh, and it was a little like the little plastic cups that you would use a little white cone. Oh yeah, there's a oh, white cone, yeah. paper cone that you would stick in the cup. Mm. And to me, it was that like, was some instant it, coffee. It was too. serious. It was no, it was just it was coffee that had been brewed and sat there probably for a solid ten hours. Mm. So it had that mm. nice little charcoal taste to yeah. it. Yeah, rich everything. So what about that, you, Greg? that was my first experience. Um, I my confession is that growing up, I was entirely a soda person. Mm. Okay, I grew up in a family where my mom drank coffee, but it was the era of coffee where coffee was what you had after dinner when you were out you know like, like that a dessert was thing. Like the dessert thing that, that was like 
my memory of coffee is like sitting in a diner and we're like, can we go? And my mom's like, I'm enjoying my coffee. There was gotcha. no coffee culture, you know? Uh, so I never went to touch coffee, had no desire for it. Uh, I grew up addicted to soda because mm. my dad. So I would go to a coffee a shop and drink a Diet Coke, okay. have a cookie or something. But as a pastor, I spent enough time in coffee shops that eventually yeah. I decided this was uh, inauthentic. I should probably learn how to drink some <laughs> sort of coffee. I did not start drinking coffee in any form until I was 35. Wow. Wow. And, and you're like 35 and a half, right? That's right. That's me now. So okay. it's a little over a decade ago. I'm 46 now. So, um, but, and I started off with things that tasted more like milkshakes. Okay. Right? Yeah. Get your, your frappuccinos, whatever sort of made up. It's right. just sugar and yeah. milk and whatever, but it had coffee in it. And then weaned myself down to actual coffee. But uh, when I was converted to coffee, um, I then realized our church uh, served coffee that made it seem like we didn't want you to drink it. Oh, yeah. Every church did that. It yeah. was Folgers. It was whatever. And I had overseen that because I just didn't drink the coffee and I didn't care. So then I immediately started searching around for who has the best coffee around, got a wholesale uh, deal with a local roaster to start like immediately upgraded our coffee and the coffee experience because I felt terrible now realizing what I had been serving to people. Right. So <laughs> break room coffee. Yes, that was yeah. exactly what we yeah. had been doing. So, so I didn't start drinking coffee till I was an adult either. I was a soda kid as well. But my first experience with coffee was in a little tiny independent church in like one of the many potlucks or functions or whatever, I went into the kitchen to help clean stuff up. And they had the like pot of coffee at the end of the event that had been unplugged probably for like three hours. Mm. So they're like, you should try it. I'm like, well, it always smells really good. I'm probably like eight or nine years Burnt old and cold. So I pour it into a cup, like lukewarm coffee that probably had about <laughs> the, a scoop the, of the, coffee grounds. The in worst it. possible. Version. So I drink it and I immediately start dry heaving. I'm like, who in the world would drink this stuff? So I didn't drink coffee at all until I was an adult weaned myself like you did, Greg, with like the sugary stuff and then eventually appreciated the black coffee. But the funny thing is, is that so I worked at True Value and I was homeschooled so I could open the store. So they were like, hey, we can get a teenage kid and pay him a couple bucks an hour to oh. like open the store. Part of that was getting the coffee maker ready. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't know what I was doing. So I was putting the coffee grounds in the wrong spot, putting the water in the wrong spot. Everything that I did was totally backwards. And all these like little old men that were at True Value, like picking up screws and stuff, they're like, man, the coffee's really good today. Like, good job, Ben. Yeah, coffee's <laughs> great. And then finally the manager was like, what did you do to this coffee? I was like, I made it the same way. I've been making it for months. He's like, this is not how you use a coffee maker. <laughs> so apparently I knew a secret before I was even a coffee drinker wow. of how to make like, double nice. strong coffee. Wow. So let's talk. Your story is unique because you are a pastor, but you are also, you're operating a thing called Free the Girls. So yes. I'll let you explain what that is. So let's just talk about what you do first and then kind of go from there. Yeah. Uh, so Free the Girls is a nonprofit that has been around for 12 years. And uh, we work uh, in the anti-trafficking world and we specifically focus on reintegration services. Okay. Um, so we work with women across the globe who are survivors of sex trafficking. Uh, and we help them reintegrate into their communities. Um, and we do that uh, through economic empowerment uh, and through holistic care um, because uh, we have discovered that in order to stop the cycle of exploitation, uh, you have to interrupt it. And economics are a huge part of how you do that. Uh, if a woman doesn't have a job and can't uh, provide housing, doesn't have food, uh, can't provide for her kids, um, 
she will be subject to the same things that made her vulnerable in the first place for being trafficked. Mm -hmm. Um, And she will return to survival sex or whatever it takes in order to be able to provide for that. Uh, So we try to interrupt that and to help them uh, be able to uh, craft a new life and sort of decide what freedom looks like for them within that. Okay. And this is something that you started as a pastor. Uh, No, actually. So I, I am, uh, the word we have often described ourselves as, as uh, accidental abolitionist. Mm. Uh, I don't use that term as much anymore, but that was the early phrase of um, totally uh, unexpectedly stumbling into this world. Okay. For me, my journey into the anti-trafficking world began actually in Russia in 2007, uh, working with a ministry out of North Carolina that I was part of, um, working with orphans. Mm. And okay. um, there I saw what vulnerabilities looked like because these kids were coming out of orphanages at 14 years old, with nothing and the organized crime uh, was there recruiting essentially just waiting for them to come out, building relationships, uh, preparing for them. So when they didn't know what to do when they got turned loose, they knew somebody who would give them a job or give them money or whatever. And that's where the exploitation began. So that was where it became real for me because I was seeing the, the systems that were making these kids, these orphans in particular vulnerable um, and then uh, my friend Dave Terpstra, who is one of the co-founders of Free the Girls, he and I went to college and a seminary together. He founded Free the Girls, and um, at the time I was serving on a board of another organization, and he said, hey, would you come serve on our board? Uh, you've been doing some of this. Uh, you know, I would just like your partnership in it. And fr- from the get-go, I was in. He, was, uh, he had moved to Mozambique as a missionary and had found the safe house there um, and was looking to do job creation for these women. Hmm. And I said, yeah, everything about it. It's great. And it was a beautiful idea from the get-go. And uh, that was what started my journey. I had no idea that 12 years later, I'd somehow be in charge of things. <laughs> um, I served on the board for about nine years and served as president of the board for about six or seven of those. And then uh, rotated off of that and took some time when I was going back to school. And then a couple of years ago, Free the Girls approached me about actually coming on to staff uh, and helping to serve in some roles for the organization. I said, sure. A year and a half into that, the board and the executive director, Courtney, came to me and said, how would you actually like to be the co-director and uh, help run the staffing and the organizational part, oversee fundraising, uh, to free up Courtney to actually do more of the international programming mm-hmm. work? Uh, and so in 22, I actually moved fully co-vocational with pastoring the church and co-leading Free the Girls. Uh, so I get to live in both worlds. It's pretty fun. Wow. Cool. So it's definitely involved. The um, The first time most people hear about Free the Girls, at least the first time I did, Hey, that's the organization that collects bras. Yeah, people know us about bras. Yep, and so and I've been in the bra room. Yes, and it is intense. It is so, very intense. <laughs> so uh, build that bridge for us. How does sure. how does that how does that work with Free the Girls? Right, that's the the part that people have known us for, and there are circles in which I'm known as the bra pastor. Nice, and we're known as the bra church we'll get you a because of that. Okay, so uh, this is always in part of the story. Uh, the the birth of Free the Girls really was as Dave was in Maputo, Mozambique, and was sort of dreaming up about what job creation for women could look like. Um, he just saw the in the used clothing markets, there were women there selling bras. And whatever, Dave's really creative and entrepreneurial, and just this idea sort of sparked, and I, we like to give God credit for it because of what it's turned into, mm-hmm. um, of, I wonder if we could get bras. But he didn't know. He had no idea about are, do women have extra bras to donate? Right. Are they just laying around? No idea. So he called his friend Kimba from, he was in Denver, who used to be part of his church. Kimba's like, every woman I know has two or three bras, bras sitting in the back of her drawer. Hmm. Happy to donate. 
Uh, and that was sort of the birth. And the idea was super small. It was maybe when people come and visit Mozambique, we'll bring a couple suitcases and we can help a couple of women. But the idea was so simple about I can donate a bra and help empower these women mm-hmm. that it just sort of spread like wildfire. And um, what we discovered with bras, which we didn't know at the beginning because we had no idea what we were doing, um, is that bras are like gold in the used clothing market. Mm-hmm. Like bras are um, sort of a luxury item in some ways, but they're uh, hard to manufacture. Like they're complicated. There's a right. lot that goes into bra manufacturing, mm-hmm. but they're also light. Mm. So when it comes to the price per pound as far as yeah, shipping and shipping. these sorts of things, um, they're really effective. And what we found now in 12 years of doing this is they are incredibly effective um, as inventory for women to run their own businesses. So the the very first thing we did for the girls was simply to help women run their own businesses selling the bras. And what we discovered was that women could make three, four, five times uh, minimum wage in their area selling bras. They were running their own businesses. They didn't have bosses. They could build their schedule around their kids. And um, they were entrepreneurial. And bras turned into to freedom for these mm-hmm. women. Uh, and so women could sell five or six bras a day and make a living wage. Wow. Mm-hmm. So so we stumbled into bras. We had no idea what it was going to become. I had no idea my church was going to receive two million bras uh, that we <laughs> sorted and sent back across it's the globe. Bras. <laughs> but uh, bras have been used in incredible ways. So That's awesome. So you shared that this this heart for this type of ministry kind of began when you were not doing free the girls, but when you were in Russia, you said, yes. Okay. So what have you learned from the people experiencing this? And also what have you learned about yourself, maybe about your faith in your interactions and in this ministry that maybe you wouldn't have known if you didn't immerse yourself in something like this? Yeah, I think this is something I've been reflecting a lot, especially in the last number of years as the implications of um, ministry to and being in community with the vulnerable and the exploited, um, as the implications of that have become clear in my own life and in uh, for my church, but also for a host of people across the globe that I that I get to be friends with and partner with. I, I think what drew us in initially to this work was this sense of uh, the need was so great and it was unthinkable that people were actually being enslaved in our world. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that I think that idea for most people sort of emerged in the last couple of decades, but this wasn't an idea we grew up with and trying to understand it, you know, drawing in this idea, this horror, you get into it and then you get into it and it's just way more complicated than you think. Mm. The lines are so less clear about um, what trafficking looks like, how people end up there. What makes people vulnerable to exploitation uh, sexually um, and to economic exploitation? Um, The realities of labor trafficking, which are actually significantly higher numbers than sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. you know, globally. Um, You know, it's it's a really nuanced and complicated mess. (laughs) So as you as you go into that, um, I think the first thing that it did was began to really challenge my assumptions about how the world worked. Mm. and um, who I am in that world and how people end up in a place like uh, being trafficked. How yeah. do they end up in that, in that place? What are, what are the factors that go into that? What are some, I mean, what are some misconceptions maybe that people might have about trafficking? I mean, the first is um, we always 
in the anti-trafficking world, I heard people make the ref- same reference all the time because it's so helpful. Uh, it's the movie Taken. Right. Right. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson right. Yeah. And this idea that that the center, that what primarily what trafficking is, are people in safe homes who are, there are these predators out trying to snatch them and take them and send them across the world. Right. Mm-hmm. That image is absolutely unhelpful in every possible way. Mm-hmm. It is really, really unlikely that that happens to anybody. Um, so let me, let me give you some examples of some of the different countries we work in um, and how different it looks. So in Mozambique, which is one of the poorest countries on earth, um, extreme poverty is, is the primary reality behind trafficking. So let's say a scenario where um, there's a mom who has kids and she can't feed them. And uh, there's a neighbor or an uncle or somebody else who says, hey, I can get them a job so they can eat. Mm. And so faced with the choice of my kids starve with me or I send them with this person so they can eat, it, that's the choice being made, not knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But that leads to a situation where now they're being exploited and maybe um, specifically being sexually exploited, um, put into prostitution, whatever it actually ends up being. Um, and so what's created that vulnerability is extreme poverty. Right. And just trying to figure out how to live within that. Um, and so they're, they're caught in this life, but the life itself is what traps them. It's not armed people keeping mm-hmm. them locked. Mm-hmm. It's that they have no other options. It's survival. They have it's to survival. meet their own needs or the yeah. needs of their family. So, um, and then because of the trauma of that, then of course you get things like addictions, mm-hmm. which are really significant. Um, you get all sorts of medical issues, right? Um, you're going to have all, all of these other pieces. You're going to end up with children if you're a woman mm-hmm. from this. So now like it keeps getting more complicated and your ability to extract yourself from that is harder and harder. Mm. So like that's a really complicated scenario to sure. think about for people. It's not as simple as I just got off a plane and somebody grabbed me. Right. Now that does happen. Right. Um, we had a program in Uganda for years and uh, there were stories there about uh, Ugandan, one of the Ugandan women was a businesswoman and she had, uh, traveled to another country trying to make a business deal, mm. but the people there were ingen- ingenuous and, uh, had brought her there to traffic her. And she was essentially kidnapped. They'd taken her resources had took, taken her passport and she did end up getting trafficked out of that mm. and was able to be repatriated back to Uganda from that. Right. Um, El Salvador, uh, where we did a lot of work, El Salvador is dominated by, um, there was a civil war there, right? You know that destroyed the country, and people know the the gangs that are there. So trafficking there may be a question of something um, like extreme poverty is be at work there too, but gangs are at work also, and women could be faced with the choice of uh, essentially being brought into the gang and being exploited through that, um, or death, or being or, a target, or it. being a target, or mm-hmm. being a threat against your family member within that. Um, so it's just it's it's just really complicated. You mentioned something a couple minutes ago about you kind of correlated it with slavery being trafficked. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a good point because I think especially when it comes to sexual exploitation and being sex trafficked, the hard thing I think for Christians to process in our brains is that we see sex outside of marriage as a sin, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that affects our ability to fully see people who are being trafficked as completely just holistically a victim Mm. in this 
if you're having sex outside of marriage, if you're having sex with multiple people, that somehow there's still something, I think, subliminally in our brains that make us think that promiscuity or you start to get into the like, well, was she at fault somehow? And I know that that's like hard to think about, but I think that might be one reason just as I was processing. Yes. Some of the whys that people would be less concerned about this. I think it's hard to personalize it because there's so much weight that we put to sexuality. And I think that mm-hmm. that affects how we see women in this scenario because it's just kind of messy and dirty. And we don't really want to think about that. We don't want to think about them solely being the one being sinned against because there's just a lot of factors involved. If somebody, if somebody yeah. decides to become trafficked in order to put food on their table, it's hard to say that that person is being victimized and not, choosing to do something that's wrong in order to make ends meet. So it's just really hard. And I'm not saying that for my own part, like that's not my personal stance. I'm just saying it's really hard for our Christian brains to kind of wrestle yes. with that. Yes. And um, the the fascinating part of this is we have seen this incredible explosion in the last 25 years, uh, especially in the evangelical church, of a huge interest in sex trafficking, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It went from nothing to we changed international law, right? Right, and through and through uh, government actions, and and there's a whole story there. But part of what uh, compelled us into that and how we have operated in that is um, we ha- we have positioned ourselves as the rescuers, mm-hmm. and we have created an idea of who the victims are. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that that's been really sort of interesting to learn about is that our idea of who's being rescued and the narratives we have to talk about with what trafficking is in order to position ourselves as the rescuers and the protectors of women's virtue. And Mm -hmm. there's all of these complicated things that have actually compelled us into the work that in some ways have made us bad at the work. Mm. In what way? Um, It's a, a power dynamic. Okay. Like when you're, when we're the rescuers, then um, we have uh, inherently not recognized the agency of the victim and the survivor. Gotcha. Or maybe even our role somewhere way down the line as part of a system or being complicit that might have caused that. That might have caused that. Yeah, that, that part, that's a, there's a, there's a great 12 part (laughs) podcast series right there (laughs) or read a dissertation coming to you soon. Okay. Okay. Well, I think, I think one of the things too, and, and, and Ben and I talked about this a few weeks ago on a different podcast, we talked about individualism in the church and, Mm -hmm. and just some of the challenges that come along with the fact that we have this individualized faith. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've got my card stamped. I'm going to heaven, you know, everybody else, you know, that's great, whatever. But we, we just have a very individualized, salvific experience, I guess. Yeah. And so I think that tends to create an us and them kind of a thing. And so when you when you talk about the posture of we're the rescuers, mm-hmm. it automatically differentiates and says, mm. they're them, we're us. Yes. And right. we're here to serve them, failing to understand that. I And I'm going to guess part of Free the Girls is making sure these girls end up in a community where they're supported by other people. And I think, you know, we, one of the questions we have on our paper is, you know, what can the church repent of? In my mind, one of the challenges that we have is treating people as our people. These aren't, these aren't those people that we need to help save. They're our people. Mm -hmm. They're us. Yeah. And, and understanding the connection between, you know, that's not a rescuer posture. No, that's a, those are my people posture. Yeah. And I'm here for my people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, I mean, going back to the original question about what's changed in the midst of it. Yeah. 
um, I, I identify that the primary work that I that God has done in my life, um, it's you know, in our in our Wesleyan holiness Nazarene language, it, it's been a sanctifying work. Mm-hmm. But what God has sanctified me of is my ability to actually see the humanity in people who exist in categories mm. that I was that I was um, at a distance from. Sure. Right, our communities and our churches are intentionally set up to keep us away from the sexually vulnerable and exploited. Mm-hmm. We've not we've not grown up in communities where talking about that, living in proximity to that, and having an imagination for how that the church functions in that way exists. Which is really interesting because in the early church, this was a prominent feature of the church. Right, so in the in the Roman Empire, as Paul's writing to these churches and talking about living in a world of sexual immorality. He's talking about a world in which there are masters and slaves, like 30, right, 30 right. to 40% of the Roman Empire. It's all about exploitation and oppression. All about exploitation. And one of the biggest issues in the early church was the people were still participating in systems of oppression. Hmm. They were still and um, benefiting from it and benefiting from it. And part of that was specifically sexual exploitation. Hmm. Slaves had no autonomy over their bodies. And this was a, a normative part of, of, of the Roman Empire, the economy, the religious systems, and how a household worked. So the early church is having to navigate this because at the same table, sharing the Lord's Supper, are masters and slaves, are exploiters and the exploited. And when you, when you read that and go back to how Paul is talking about how you have to become the church and what you have to do, you recognize that this proximity to one another and how they wrestled with these things like was reshaping the church. But we've we've grown up completely isolated from that sort of reality. Right. I mean, the last few of our conversations with people, it seems to always go back to proximity is the main problem, that mm-hmm. we're no longer in proximity with so many different sections of humanity that we don't see them as humanity. And then not only that, we just build narratives of fear to avoid mm-hmm. responsibility for having to build those relationships. I mean, I think of even like the fears that we have around trafficking, although again, valid, I'm sure in some situations, but I think a lot of times our fears of trafficking always revolve around boogeyman coming to steal your kids. I mean, it's yes. like adults being forced to making this decision, like you said, yes. or I mean, even in, even in our society, it's not even just in other parts of the world that are dealing with the highest poverty. I mean, you were even talking, Rich, about students in schools, in high schools in our area, that it's like you kind of wonder, are they possibly being trafficked? Because things just don't seem to be adding up. Right. I mean, it's a reality. And your wife is in education too. Sure. I mean, they go through training. What are some of the things that you need to be looking for in in student behavior that would be little red flags? It'd be like, Mm -hmm. "Um, okay, you're missing for a few days. You come back. You're a little not clear on where you've been. All these kinds of different red flags. I mean, the reality is it, it is happening, and it's happening in most communities, yes. And which sounds a very fear-based thing for me to say, but it's not some distant, it's not just a Mozambique thing. No. It's not just a Guatemala thing. Mm-hmm. It's a Chesterton, Indiana thing. Absolutely. It's a Portage, it's a region thing. Right. And so... And a lot of the, not reasoning, but a lot of the scenarios that end up building that revolve around the same things. They revolve around poverty and they yep. revolve yep. around resources not being met and needs not being met. Yeah. And, um, and lack know, of community too. They don't have a support system around yeah. them 
to tell them, hey, we've got you. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't have to go these directions. Isolation, that's that's mm-hmm. right, that lack of community, that's mm-hmm. a huge part, right? If you're looking for like thinking about translating vulnerabilities into into our community mm-hmm. within that, right? Uh, it's especially going to be amongst youth, amongst children, those who are isolated. Um, and the the people who are looking to exploit others are really good at what they do mm-hmm. in horrible ways. Um, you know, the the often scenario around here is or in the US you would you would hear is like a Romeo scenario where it's somebody who they've met on social media who right. lavishes them with attention and that they want in, need bring into bring them into a relationship uh, may convince them to uh, cross over boundaries as far as like putting themselves in unsafe situations or running away or whatever until they're dependent on that person then they can be exploited uh th- those are very common scenarios that are happening they're happening in our communities they're happening in the US absolutely within that um and there are things we have to be trained to pay attention to and right. work against, but they're, they're a little different than what uh, we think is going to happen for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So how's your view of the gospel changed mm-hmm. or has it changed? Yeah. I, I think the gospel has uh, continually just expanded <laughs> in my mind. Like my imagination for what good news is mm. continually expands. Um, and it's, it's because I've gotten to see and hear the stories of what can be. Um, uh, our, our church has partnered with uh, incredible Nazarene uh, work in Romania called Open Door Foundation, that they're pretty much the only people um, providing safe housing for uh, women and children coming out of sex trafficking in Romania. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, uh, Monica Bosef, who runs it, her husband, Christy, is the pastor of the Nazarene Church in Bucharest. Um, incredible people. And so I go there, and I, I can remember one particular moment where we were uh, gathered for, uh, it was Pastor Appreciation Month there too. goes everywhere. <laughs> Happy Pastor Appreciation Month. Yeah, right? you, you too. too. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> why it's I everywhere. gave you that piece of Kringle before <laughs> that's we right, started. That's right. Um, and we're there, and they were having like a lunch afterwards, and um, uh, Pastor Deshauna, who is part of our staff, was there with me, and uh, she was celebrating a birthday, and um, some of the girls in the safe house had made a cake, but it was also like one of the girls' birthdays nearby, and there was a guy in the church who was having a birthday. Mm-hmm. And so after the service, we're sitting there, we're having this meal, and it's all this interactions. And here at the church, there are a number of women who are from the safe house, so they've been trafficked, and they're kids, and they're fully embraced by this church. Like, they're just loved, right? And here we are, these American visitors, and these girls are serving us mm. and bringing us and doing that. And the other person at the church whose birthday it was is a guy who used to be a trafficker. Wow. Wow. Who's come out of that life and repented that and is an active part of this church. Wow. And here's this meal of the church gathered. And here's the service of of these women and a birthday celebration. And here's this American pastor. And here's this former trafficker, uh, like, uh, at the table. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's one of those kingdom moments. Like, this is, Jesus told lots of stories like this, right? Yeah. Uh, About the unexpected people at the table. and. I don't know that I had an imagination for the gospel where that was possible. Right. Wow. Just how how that wrecks your idea of like overcoming guilt, overcoming shame, true forgiveness and like yeah, to sit at a table with those who've been trafficked and somebody who was the trafficker. Well, it's the promise and of embrace each other. It's the promise of reconciliation and restoration. Right. I mean, right. it's it, it is the promise of the gospel that that in the end there, there are things that bridge the divide. Christ bridges that divide right. and reconciles people back to one another. It's an amazing. Wow, that's crazy. So is yeah. that what you're writing about? 
Um, yeah, my, my dissertation's uh, looking through sort of the story of 25 years of the evangelical response to human trafficking mm. and um, understanding uh, what made us sort of bad at it. Mm-hmm. That's okay. <laughs> oh, do, do tell, do tell. Give <laughs> us, give okay. us some highlights. And, and trying to and trying to tell the story, uh, sort of through the experience of Free the Girls and our church, uh, with others about um, how God can use our uh, ministry to community with the sexually vulnerable and exploited to change us. Yeah, and to expand our imagination for the gospel. Wow, that's really what I'm 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 writing about and trying to understand because I feel like I've had this privileged journey myself of doing this. Yeah, and I've gotten to journey with a whole host of others doing it, and I've just seen it unlock lots of other conversations about reconciliation. Sure, that what's your imagination for what uh, the reconciliation can look like in a community, mm. especially as we're looking at larger issues like uh, obviously with racism and uh, gender issues and all sorts of things that are happening in our world. Man, it's really blown up my imagination for that, mm-hmm. and uh, I. So that's the story we're trying to tell. I know that you're going to be sharing with us uh, at our church here towards the end of November and different things like that. But what are what are some things that you'd want people just to kind of finally know about Free the Girls? Um, how can we support it? How how can a church come alongside? Yeah, uh, Free the Girls. Uh, I know you do broad drives and and different things like yeah. that. But uh, the the great joy of my life is that. Uh, Free the Girls has become a really easy on-ramp for people to learn about the realities of human trafficking, but to do something. Mm-hmm. Like the the footprint of people globally who have done something because of hum- in response to human trafficking through Free the Girls is astounding to me. Mm. I mean, it's in the so far into the tens of thousands that like it's just like a made up number to me at this point. Right. Um. And and. Seeing that, it's uh, been the privilege of watching that become a way in which people have begun, I'm going to do something small, and then deciding, wait, I can do more with my life because of that. Um, and so that's what I always tell people about, you want to partner with Free the Girls? Like There are really simple ways, um, but there's also really uh, beautiful, deeper ways, too, that if you really want to get involved with your life in this. So yeah, the first thing is, we always tell people what we need are bras and bucks. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right. We yeah. collect an average of two hundred to three hundred thousand bras a year wow. that become the inventory for these women to run their businesses. And our ability to open up new countries w- with the bra selling program in particular, which is not the only thing we do, but with that program, is dependent on having a consistent inventory of new and gently used bras to do for that. So mm-hmm. great. You can do that as an individual, you can do that as a club, as a church, as a group, host bra drives. We have lots of resources for that. It's great. Um uh, the other part of that though is Everything else we do requires money, including receiving the bras, packaging the bras, shipping the bras. Um, but the the job skills program that we run for the women, the staff we help support both in the U.S. and across the globe to run these programs to work mm-hmm. with women, and it, it all just costs money. So, sure, uh, you know that's that's a huge part as well. Uh, any donations within that? Um, but for organizations, it's really cool to see. We have, um, you know, as a Christian nonprofit, you know. You don't know who is going to want to partner with you. Mm-hmm. But something has been really compelling to people about our particular vision. And I think it's maybe the bras. I think people take us differently because of the bras. Like we seem more approachable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have incredible partnerships with Haynes Brand. Right. And Aerie and Title IX and Adore Me. We have international shipping companies that partner with us. Wow. Um, and to see how people's imagination have been like, well, I can't do that, but we can do this. Right. Um, same thing with churches and local businesses that have been bra drop-off locations mm-hmm. or hosted events for us. 
um, we're always really open to, uh, we sort of have this bias to like assuming there's some way for us to partner. <laughs> when people approach us, we're, well, let's discover what it is. Sure. Um, well, that's another beautiful thing about it too, is that it's another example, a shining example that businesses actually will help the church do kingdom work if they're doing it. Yeah. Because you're seeing businesses like Haynes isn't in the evangelism game. They are not. But they're definitely uh, an aid for you in the ministry that you would never have thought if you weren't a part of this. You would just assume, you know, business and church can be separated and even government too. I'm sure that, yeah. you know, there are government grants for things when the church is actually showing that it's doing something that's making an impact on and people. Leading to transformation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. It's uh, That's one of the most exciting things for me is to see how somebody will be excited about this. And look around to see what they can leverage on behalf of of, of the common good, yeah. right? And yep. that can be an executive uh, who says, "Well, we've got six hundred stores around the country. Let's mm-hmm. collect brawls at them." Or yeah. um, technology companies that have uh, uh, an ethos that says, "We want our employees to give back to the world," and will have us come in and just do an employee presentation and say, "Hey, we'll do some matching funds. If you guys want to donate out of your paychecks, we'll we'll match that." Just because we think. We should do good in the world. And sure. what they're doing has nothing to do mm-hmm. with our world whatsoever, mm-hmm. but they just think we can do some good here. Yeah. You know? Cool. So how can people learn more? Freethegirls.org? Freethegirls.org. Yep. Okay. Are, and you can find us on all the socials. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, cool. All the, I, socials. all the socials. Got two more questions. Yeah. First one is what are just some things maybe for the church to think about in ways that we can think about our actions and the impact when it comes to trafficking? Like maybe not necessarily things to do, but maybe it's something to not do or just something to think about. Because like you said, there's, it's a, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, I'm a big proponent of education and trying to understand what's really out there. Um, we do a lot of that with Free the Girls, but there is, uh, you know, we live really open-handed in the anti-trafficking world because mm-hmm. there's so many incredible people doing incredible work. Um, I would encourage people, there are a host of documentaries, there's specials, there's books, like you, you won't have to go search very far to find some good resources to just understanding what actually is going on um, and get behind some of the mythology around it. So I just encourage people to do that because um, it is a global phenomenon because we live in this interconnected world, right? -hmm. Right. Having just lived through a pandemic, I think we understand how connected we actually are globally in different ways. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Um, We live in a world where we buy products that we don't make. And we don't really know the conditions of people who are better making them. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, responsible consuming is a really important Christian uh, embodiment of good news. Mm. Do we regularly participate in the exploitation of the most vulnerable people by how we consume? Right. And that's, man, I, I question myself that all the time because yeah. everything's so hard to know with that. And it's so complex because even if you want to look to like scripture, when it comes to oppression and exploitation, there weren't economic systems like they are now. So we have to, we have to contextualize right oppression in our own time. And that does get way more complicated. Like they didn't have to think about if their purchases were from somebody across the other end of the world, that wasn't something that they were talking about, Mm -hmm. but the principle still applies is are we complicit or, somehow doing something blindly that is affecting people. But I think on the blindly other side of the world. is the key. I mean, you know, our consumption's based on clicks at this point. Hmm. I don't have to know. I mean, yeah. I, I, literally it's right. not the information's not even available. They don't to they me. don't want you to know. Right. Yeah. I mean right. the 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 seminary in Guatemala that we were staying in yeah. that one night, there was a factory and 
sure enough, the the compassion ministries director was like, yeah, that factory, you know, has children working in it and they're working for not great wages. And, and it's, it's just a Chinese like, factory. And it's, yeah. and it's a Guatemala. Chinese factory. Mm-hmm. So it's and not even. Just, yeah. So I'm sure those tags say maybe made in China, but they're really made in a Guatemalan sweatshop, essentially. Yeah. And it's just you just don't even know. Unless you do know, and then that has implications. And sometimes, your life. and sometimes I think, from an education standpoint, there's a once you know, you know. That's the problem. And now you're okay. Oh man, now I know. Here, here's a really low hanging fruit one. Mm-hmm. I we all, we talk about with people regularly. Halloween's coming up. Mm-hmm. People going to be buying some candy. Mm-hmm. Chocolate's a really easy one to actually navigate, because. Uh, most of the major chocolate manufacturers uh, do not uh, claim <laughs> to have a clean <laughs> supply sourcing, right, right. whatever within this, right? And we know the chocolate is uh, the number of children mm. working to provide the world with chocolate uh, in really exploitive waves is it's it's astounding once you get to know it. Buy chocolate that just talks about being fair trade or ethically sourced. Mm. Like go to Aldi. They've got lots of chocolate there. Right. Um, it, it may not be the bags with uh, 250 pieces you're going to find at Meyer. Might be a little bit more expensive. Might be a little more expensive. You, you'll be the house on the block that's a little bit bougie. A little bit bougie. There right, you go. There a little bougie go. chocolate, right? <laughs> but 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 something like that where here's something we're going to buy. It's it's part of life. It's whatever. Chocolate's going to be in our world. You can, you can opt into a different chocolate. Right. You know? I, yeah. I, I have a hard time buying chocolate because I just know where it came from now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that's a pretty low hanging fruit for people just yeah, I mean, thinking well, about it. And so circling back around coffee. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to have you talk about free the girls coffee. And sure. I know this might cause problems because we're cafe Crayole here. It's, at, it's wonderful at, and delightful. You know, and, and we live open handed with coffee as well. <laughs> but, uh, but it brings up um, coffee is the same thing. Sure. I mean, right. I, you know, I kind of act like I was ignorant, Mr. Drip and stuff, but when I go in and buy coffee now, I'm, I literally am okay paying more yeah. and, and I, I, I definitely resist the urge to buy coffee and having been on coffee plantations in mm-hmm. Guatemala mm-hmm. and understood the process and the economics of it and rec- recognizing that the poverty level of some of the people and children mm-hmm. working on the very plantation I toured, yeah. um, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm okay spending a little bit more and not contributing to some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, talk to us about Free the Girls Coffee real quick. Yeah, just one of the uh, – I, I like to brainstorm. I like to make up things. <laughs> one of the things uh, in the past couple of years as I've been helping us think about different revenue streams to help support our women uh, was uh, early on in Free the Girls, the, one, the first thing that funded any of our programs was an incredible clothing line of like T-shirts and apparel mm-hmm. and design. We had these incredible people who designed all this stuff. And I mean – I don't know how many Free the Girls t-shirts my wife and daughter have owned over right. the years, but like a whole line of them. But I got to thinking, you know, the thing about a t-shirt is once you have one, you tend to wear it for a long time. And I started thinking like, well, what what could we sell that would help fund our programs that people need an infinite amount of? Coffee. Coffee. This is what came to my mind. So I started uh, dreaming of like, well, what would it look like for us to have our own brand of coffee that we could sell simply so that when people are buying coffee, they're like, well, if I'm going to buy co- good coffee, I'm happy to do so knowing that the extra funds from this uh, are actually going to help go help women. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a couple months ago, we launched uh, Free the Girls Coffee. And it's literally you find it at freethegirls.coffee. Wow. I found out .coffee was a web address. Wow. And it changed my life. 
freethegirls.coffee. Um, and uh, we and you've been doing pop-ups in the area too. Yeah, which I have been. been cool. Yeah, it's that's been cool. Fun. Huh? So uh, it's all been a, sort of a fun experiment. But we work with uh, a local roaster who uh, is working with uh, small farmers to do ethically sourced and sustainably farmed coffee. It's roasted here in Northwest Indiana per order. So like when people order coffee through a website, it gets roasted for them Wow! to do that. And, uh, and we ship it all over the country. So cool. we have that available cool. locally. We have it anywhere in the country, but free the girls.coffee, you can buy good coffee and do good things. Nice. Cool. Nice. Give me one success story from A to Z of someone that was pulled out of trafficking through free the girls and even maybe how they found community through free the girls. Like mm. give us, give us your best success story for us to rally around and say, okay, me donating this bra or me giving a couple hours of my time or me giving that $20 is going to make the kingdom come. Sure. Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, came out of Mozambique with one of the women who was part of one of our early uh, graduates from the program there. And um, she had done a good job of building her own business and um, had uh, established herself. And when she graduated, women graduate from our program in about two to three years generally, because we don't want them dependent on us either. Right. We're trying to equip them so they can go out mm -hmm. and build their own lives. Um, and she came back to us because we started something. Uh, this wasn't part of the original plan, but as we grew and matured, uh, we started something called the Inheritance Project. Um, and it was for women who graduated from our program and they could uh, save money um, and we would incentivize them by matching the funds and uh, providing grants for them for whatever it is they wanted. They wanted to go back to school. They wanted to buy land, build a house, and do this, whatever. So this one woman, Ophelia, came to us and um, got a grant and bought a piece of land. And we had pictures from the land, and she built a house. And like owning a piece of land, right? As a formerly enslaved person owning a piece of land, this is, you know, for us as uh, Christians, this is literally year of Jubilee stuff, mm. right? Like this is yeah. pretty pretty, pretty uh, ancient uh, idea for us, right? That people would be restored to the land. And she came back to us a second time for another grant from the inheritance project. And we were like, well, what are you doing with that? You get like, you know, right. we were really excited about it. Um, and she's like, I'm buying another piece of land. And we thought, are you expanding? Like what's going on? And she's like, no, no, I'm buying this piece of land and put it in my 12 year old daughter's name. Wow. And when you think about like breaking uh, generational poverty, yeah. when you think about breaking cycles of things, this was a, a woman who's the impact, right? Ripples out into the community of like ex extended family and jobs, whatever. But now she was changing the course of her daughter's life, making sure her daughter had an inheritance, mm. a piece of land in her name, right? Like that's the long view, the long view. That's, that's how you make long-term change in the world, yeah. uh -huh. you know, within that. And when we, when we got started in all this, we did not have remotely the imagination to guess these yeah. sorts of things were coming. Yeah. But it's an incredible joy to watch it actually take place and and to see that. So um, we're thankful for every bit we get to be part of stories like that. Awesome. Well, Greg, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate Absolutely. your enthusiasm you. and everything that you're doing. And hopefully we can continue to make progress yeah. in our partnership. Thanks, man. It's been great to be in the region with you, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're a blessing to the community and the kingdom. So we will talk to you soon. The Real Life Roundtable is a production of Real Life Community Church in Portage, Indiana. For more information, Follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org.